the world offers no shortage of philosophies and worldviews. In a multicultural city like Boston, with constant internet access, we're all aware of various and assorted different ways of living. There are Eastern religions, which emphasize tranquility and harmony with nature. There's Islam, which emphasizes submission to Allah. There is atheism, which allows its followers to pursue noble self-sacrifice or nihilistic narcissism, with no apparent means to morally distinguish between the two. And there are, of course, almost infinite number of permutations in between. Some people say they follow reason. Others follow their feelings. Yet more, follow their experiences to interpret and guide their daily living. What about you? What are you following? Is there a moral or spiritual philosophy that guides your daily life? To help us answer these questions, we'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, so I'd encourage you to turn there now. This is our second week as we begin to walk through the Gospel of Mark, where we'll simply go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeking to hear from God's Word. Uh, just a little like, you know, tip. At the back of the bulletin, it has an upcoming schedule, sermon schedule. So uh, if you're curious about what, Lord willing, is on the docket, look at the back, and you'll see the, the roadmap from where we're, for where we're going. Uh, as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, our goal is not to be creative or fresh, necessarily, but to be attentive and humble. So the goal is, Lord willing, at 11.30 on Sunday afternoons, not that people walk out being like, wow, that was really a creative sermon. But wow, can you believe what God's word said? We want to hear from God, not just Scott's religious or spiritual thoughts. Last week, we saw in chapter one that, that Mark gave us the bluff, the bottom line up front. So you see there in chapter one, verse one, Mark right, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the whole book of Mark orients around this question of who is Jesus? Thus, Mark has given us the answer key, as it were, right there in chapter 1, verse 1. This is what we need to keep front and center as we begin to walk through the next 16 chapters. Because I do think it's easy to kind of, um, as we're walking through, you know, we get, we get fixated on the, on the parables or the feeding of the 5,000, or these beloved stories, and we just begin to think, oh, wow, these are, you know, these are nice stories. Well, the stories are there to tell us about who Jesus is. And Mark has told us right there in 1-1, this is what Trinity Church of Bedford should keep front and center as we go through Mark's gospel. So we saw last week that John the Baptist came on the scene as God's heavenly messenger. He proclaimed that someone extremely important was coming, and thus Jesus arrived was baptized, and the heavens declared that Jesus, well, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. As we saw God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan. He prevailed over sin and temptation. And thus we arrive at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. We'll have two sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Because Jesus brings God's kingdom, we should leave all to follow him. Because Jesus brings God's kingdom, we should leave all 
to follow him. So read with me, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Claiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 14 to 15, entitled, The Good News of God's Kingdom. And so just as kind of Mark 1.1 serves as a high-level summary statement of what the entire book is about, so verses 14 and 15 function similarly as a kind of high-level summary of what Jesus' ministry was about. Okay, so it's like pregnant with meaning. Uh, Notice three things in verse 14. First, notice the normalcy of suffering for God's people. Mark begins, now after John was arrested, you know, Mark will later give us details of what's going on with this arrest, how it happened, the circumstances, But here we simply note that God's messengers are not immune from suffering. And far from being immune from it, it seems that faithfulness actually sometimes increases that suffering. Persecution is no stranger to God's people. And insofar as Jesus is picking up John's mantle, well, we'll see that there's likely here a foreshadowing of Jesus' own fate. Second, Notice that after John's arrest, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. You know, if the creator and ruler of the universe came down and took on human flesh, where do you assume he would go? Maybe like Boston, New York, London, Shanghai, or Rome, Ephesus, at least Jerusalem. And yet here, Jesus began his ministry In Galilee, Jesus did not despise the weak and the lowly places and peoples of the world. His calculation was not that bigger always equals better. He went to Galilee, a backwater region in the northern part of Israel. And, you know, I think we can be encouraged to know that just as Jesus' ministry had humble beginnings, well, so too do we. Third, You see that Jesus came to to pick up John's mantle. Well, that's evident in that last phrase. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel to describe John's activity as one of preaching. Keruso, it's the same word. So Jesus, well, Jesus was a preacher. Fundamentally, Jesus came to preach. You know, we'll consider this point a little more next week. But in verse 38, Jesus says, he kind of goes out to pray after doing some miracles, and people are like, where are you? We want more miracles. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. 
You see, in Jesus' own self-estimation, he was primarily not a, a miracle worker or a healer or an exorcist. He was a preacher. And we see there the, the content of his preaching. At the end of verse 14, it says he was preaching the gospel of God. What exactly does Mark mean by that phrase, gospel? Well, gospel simply means good news. In the Old Testament, it was often used to describe the, the rule and the reign of a particular king. Okay, so in 1 Samuel 31, we read that, uh, so they killed Israel's king Saul and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Philistines saying, hey, good news, King Saul is not on the throne anymore. Or we have it obviously more positively in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful, upon the feet are the, uh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see how at both times it's related to this rule and reign of a certain king. And so, Verse 14 describes it as the good news, the gospel of God. Side note, the ESV translates this perfectly. It's exactly how the Greek has it. And prepositions are tricky little things, aren't they? What does it mean to say that it's the gospel of God? Does it mean that it's the gospel about God? Right, so the report of her success means it's the report about her success. Or you could refer to the owl of Harry Potter, right? And that's Harry Potter's owl. The of is not, it's not the owl about. What, what is going on here? What does Mark intend for us to understand? Well, friends, this is why we, again, we're preaching through the whole book of Mark. Because oftentimes the answer to yours and mine are questions, well, it's found just in the context just around our text. I think Mark has already given us the answer of how we should interpret this phrase, the gospel of God. So you're going to get sick of this, but look again at chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we have two different phrases, don't we? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we have the gospel of God. Well, which is it? What's going on? I think the answer, quite simply, is that it is God's gospel about Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. So to paraphrase verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming God's good news. And that good news centers on himself as the Christ, the Son of God. You know, the fact that this is God's gospel that you and I are also called to herald and to teach, I think that clarifies our responsibilities. The fact that it's God's gospel and not yours and mine, well, that, that again shows that our job, well, creativity is not the chief virtue, faithfulness is. You know, it's like if I wrote a note and I said, you know, hey, Joel, can you give this to my wife? 
I would not be super pleased if you're like, well, Scott, you shouldn't say that. You know, you should rewrite. You should, well, there's much, I, I can really improve on this. Well, you might be able to with my letters, but we can't improve on God's gospel. It's his news. Our job is simply be faithful in retelling it. We, we see more fully what Jesus means to preach the gospel, God's gospel, in verse 15. Look there. Jesus proclaimed, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, here again, we notice three things in verse 15. First, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, which is a fairly grandiose statement, isn't it? You know, I don't walk around saying, the time is fulfilled. It's good to be good. The time is fulfilled. What would you like from the Starbucks? What's Jesus getting at when he says this? Well, friends, Jesus is saying nothing less than that now, at his advent, it is the climax of human history. This is the apex of creation. Since the formation of the cosmos, the creation of Adam and Eve, the fall into sin, the judgment on Noah's generation, the grace and the steadfast, the wick to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fulfillment of that steadfast love in Israel's history, the wicked kings, the good kings of Israel, the exile to Babylon, the return to Judah, it's all been building towards this. And yet, that's actually not even half of it. So, so turn in your Bibles briefly. I don't do this often, but, but turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Not only has God been planning Christ's advent since creation or after Adam and Eve's fall into sin, no, this plan goes back way before then. If you're using one of those Mark scripture journals, my apologies. Ephesians 1, uh, just begin with me at verse 3. Let's look together. And I want you to pay attention to when Paul says these elements of our salvation happened. When were they planned and arranged? Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, when did God choose us to receive all these spiritual blessings? It was before the foundation of the world. And when, according to Ephesians 1 verse 10, has all that been made manifest? Well, now it's been set forth in Christ at the fullness of time. 
you know, like sometimes we make long-term plans, right? So we might plan a vacation 12 months out. Uh, We might plan a wedding a few months out. But generally, right, I mean, like typically the longer you're planning something, the more significant it is when it comes to pass, right? There's a reason you don't just say like, hey, you want to get married tomorrow? But you say, hey, do you want to go to coffee in an hour, right? It's just a little bit less significant. Well, God has been planning the salvation of sinners from all eternity. And at Jesus' advent, it's happening. It's finally coming true. You know, brothers and sisters, if Christ's work was a whimsical, fleeting desire made in a moment of passion, well, we might be worried that he'd change his mind one day. Perhaps on on judgment day, he wouldn't be so inclined to save us. However, because Christ's advent was the result of an eternal decree, now come to pass at the fullness of time, well, our salvation is as secure as it can possibly be. In Jesus' advent, the time had finally come. Uh, The second thing Jesus notes there in verse 15 is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Frankly, this is closely aligned to the point we just made. God's kingdom is the the rule and the reign uh, of himself in the lives and the hearts of his people. And so he's been about this since the beginning. If God's plan in eternity past had been the salvation of sinners, God's plan from eternity past also had been that his kingdom, his rule and his reign in his people's lives, well, that it would one day happen. So Adam and Eve were intended to live under God's kingship and expand his kingdom as they were fruitful and they multiplied and they filled the earth and they subdued it, right? They were to push the boundaries, the borders of God's kingdom, as it were. But what do they do instead? Did they advance God's kingdom? No, they set up their own rival kingdom. They kicked God off the throne, and they wanted to be the sovereigns and the monarchs. When God chose Abraham in Genesis 12, it was to establish a new nation that would not be marked by idolatry and injustice, but rather worship the Lord and loving one another. That's what Israel's supposed to be. That's what David and all the kings were supposed to help inculcate. And yet that's what Israel and her kings had so miserably failed at for so long. And so Jesus now, now that the fullness of time has come, he proclaims the kingdom of God is happening now. It's finally here. And of course, Jesus can say this because he is the Christ. He's the son of God. He's the king who brings the kingdom. Because that's the only way it works, isn't it? You can't have a kingdom without a king. So for Jesus to say, the kingdom's here, what's he also saying? The king is here. I've come to establish my rule and reign. You know, that's why it was so significant when last week we considered how the father spoke from heaven, you are my beloved son, quoting Psalm 2, which is a psalm about Israel's king. Israel's kingdom was supposed to be, because just like Adam and Eve, Israel fell into sin. But now in Jesus, God's king had arrived who was not going to fall into sin. He resisted Satan's temptations. 
And so, friends, make no mistake, Jesus' kingdom has been a radical success. Where are the borders, you ask? Where's the government? Who are the people? Well, it's you and me. It's Christians. Christ currently reigns in the hearts and lives of his people, and he's been doing so for 2,000 years. You know, Rome was sacked. The Holy Roman Empire dissolved. The Chinese Tang Dynasty fell apart. Great Britain is only a shadow of its imperial self. The Soviet Union fell. And one day America will too. Don't set your hopes on the kingdoms of this world, but rather let us set our hope in the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom has persevered and flourished for thousands of years, and it will have no end. You know, like a mustard seed, it appears small at times. But when the fullness of time comes again, the Lord Jesus descends from heaven, well, then his kingdom will become manifestly glorious for all the world to see. No longer confined to the church, all the kings and all the nations, well, they will bow before his throne in recognition of Jesus' universal kingship. And so how should we respond to this great news? The end of verse 15 has the third part of Jesus' message for us. We should repent and believe in the gospel. We should repent and believe in the gospel. Two sides of the same coin. As we covered last week, to repent of our sins is to resolve to turn away from them. We turn away from self-rule to submit to Jesus' rule. We take money or approval of others or sex or comfort or pride or we take anything, we take it off the throne and we recognize Jesus as the sovereign and monarch of our lives. We say, Jesus, I want you to be king, not me. And we believe in the gospel. That is, we trust Christ and take him at his word. We accept who he says he is and we stake our whole lives upon it. Uh, Notice also that Jesus doesn't just say, you know, repent and believe, but repent and believe in the gospel. He doesn't call people to a generic faith. I can't tell you how many times as I'm sharing the gospel, people say, oh, I totally agree. We all need to have faith. Okay. Yes, we do need to have faith in Jesus. But faith isn't like this magic elixir that just solves our problems. No, we need to have faith in a reliable object like Jesus, the gospel. That's what we're called to put our trust in. And thus we come back to this all-important word. You know, it's really interesting for Jesus to say, believe in the gospel, for him to preach about the kingdom of God. Here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the glory of his person was not fully known, was it? You know, the details of his mission and his identity had been shrouded under this messianic secret. Yet as Mark's gospel unfolds, we'll see Jesus is the perfect son of God, taken on our flesh. He resisted Satan's temptations, always living in conformity to his father's will. He went to the cross to die as our substitute, bearing our wrath and our penalty, bearing exactly what we deserve for our sinning. And then he rose from the dead three days later, victorious, vindicated as the king. You know, how do you know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross did it, that it worked? 
Well, Jesus rose from the dead three days later. So that for whomever, whoever repents of their sin and trusts in Christ, they will be forgiven. They will have entrance into Christ's heavenly kingdom. Everyone is invited, but only some come. Friends, it's this gospel that we're so excited about here at Trinity Church of Bedford. It's our first core value. You know, without the gospel, we're nowhere. Without the gospel, we're a social club with kind of lame hobbies. If you've not, but with the gospel, well, now we have everything. Friends, if you've not repented of your sins and believed in the gospel, do so today. Well, what does it look like practically to repent and believe in the gospel? Let's examine that now in our final section in verses 16 to 20, entitled, Following Jesus. Look there at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. In short, in these verses, we see that repenting of our sins and believing the gospel means that Jesus takes priority over our vocations. Jesus takes priority over our work. Notice how Mark emphasizes the work that Simon and Andrew were doing four times uh, in these two verses. Their work is mentioned. So verse 16 says they were casting a net, for they were fishermen. In verse 17, Jesus' call in their lives is to remain a kind of fisherman. And then notice especially Mark's summary of their response. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Friends, to truly follow Christ, he must be our high, our plans and our agenda. He is the king, and so we bend our knees and our plans to his command. And so here, Peter and Andrew show that, that's in, that this includes our work. You know, work is a good thing. God made Adam and Eve to work the garden. And so insofar as, e- as we are able to glorify God and serve others in our work, praise God, right? Whether it's mowing grass or curing cancer, whether it's studying markets or caring for your home, work is a good thing. But it should never become an ultimate thing. We should never let it take precedence over following Jesus. There's so many implications of this. One is that we should never pursue work that harms others or is sinful, right? Because Jesus is our authority, we'd rather a low-paying job that honors him than a high-paying gig that dishonors him. Because Jesus is a higher priority than our work, it also means that we will at times say no to work's demands so that we can say yes to Jesus' commands. For example, you might say no to a promotion that requires so many hours away from your family whom God has called you to lead and to serve. You might say no to a position that causes you to work regularly on Sundays because you know that God has called his people to gather on the Lord's Day. You might say no to moving across the country so you can, for a promotion, so that you can continue to advance the gospel here in Boston. You might say no to a job that requires such intense hours that it leaves little margin 
from discipling other Christians in your church or evangelizing your neighbors. Brothers and sisters, in all these ways, we can evidence that Jesus is our highest priority and not our work. You know, perhaps this week, as you meet up with other Christians, that's something you can talk about. What does it look like in my life? Help me to think about what it looks like in my life to serve Christ in my work, yet not that have, have that be a higher priority than following Jesus. That'd be a good thing to talk about. Uh, we should also note that Jesus is specifically calling Peter and Andrew to vocational ministry. Do you guys notice that? Which most Christians are not called to. That is, for these two brothers, Jesus was calling them to stop their full-time non-ministry job to go full-time as a minister of the gospel. You see that in the play, play on words at the end of verse 17. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. That which Jesus is doing, namely calling others to follow him, he wants Simon and Andrew to do, to call others to follow Jesus. Jesus' words here are an allusion to Jeremiah's hunter, which my mom read earlier for us, where the Lord says he'll send out fishers and hunters to the ends of the earth. You know, God is on this mission to hunt down his lost children, as it were. And he's sending out you and me to accomplish that great mission. C.S. Lewis once described God as the hound of heaven. And ordinarily, he does that through his people. While most Christians are not called to leave their full-time job to enter full-time into ministry, some are. You know, and it's not because their fishing business is failing they decide, ah, oh, got to get something to do. It's rather because the summons of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goal of becoming a fisher of men is so compelling and constraining that they leave full-time whatever work they were doing to start full-time making disciples, being a fisherman of men and women. And so if that's you this morning, if you have a, a stirring and some desire to enter full-time into ministry, uh, let me brief you, briefly encourage you to talk to the people around you. Having an internal call and desire is a great thing. It is a necessary thing. It is not, however, a sufficient thing. Talk to the people around you, if that's you, if you have that desire, and say, you know, what do, what do you think of this desire I have? Have they benefited spiritually from their relationship with you? Have they seen evidences of grace in your character? Is there a track record of faithfulness and fruitfulness in your ministries and relationships towards others. Uh, notice also in this call to vocational ministry that this is a call, I would argue, is, is specifically enjoined upon pastors to take the lead in. So in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul commands the pastor Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Just as Jesus was in full-time ministry, calling others to full-time ministry, so apparently one of the parts of the pastor's job description is raising up other pastors and other leaders in the church. This is why, Lord willing, we will intend to have a pastoral internship line item in the budget here at Trinity. It's probably going to be pretty small. But the reason we do that is because, you know, I think, honestly, Hope, has Hope Fellowship Church has left us an amazing example um, of raising up and equipping gospel ministers and then deploying them to the four corners of the globe. 
whether that's campus ministers or Bible translators or missionaries abroad or people going to church revitalizations. I mean, there's just like a, a dozen ways that, by God's grace, I think hope has, has invested in Beacon, invested in us. Um, and, and so we want to do our part, right? Uh, just as Jesus called Peter and Andrew to full-time vocational ministry, he's continuing to do that today. And so, uh, you know, that internship, Lord willing, it may be for Gordon-Conwell students. We're not too far away from a seminary. Uh, it may be for some of you, some of the members of the church. It, it may just be for other people in the community who we meet and that who, who are interested. But the goal in all of this is to help train up and raise more fishers of men. Uh, that's what our first vignette, our first example of what it means to repent and believe the gospel shows us that Christ is supreme over our vocations. Let's see our second example now in verses 19 and 20. We read, And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. What we, hear, what we see here is that Jesus takes precedence even over our families. Did you notice that? James is introduced as the son of Zebedee. We have no idea about Peter, Simon, and Andrew's parents or father or relationship. But here, James is introduced as the son of Zebedee. James and John are in the boat with their father. Jesus calls them. And here, the emphasis isn't that they left their nets it's not that they left their occupation. It says, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. You know, Trinity Church of Bedford, families are a wonderful gift. Families are often some of the best gifts that God gives, which is why when families go wrong, it's often so hard. It's often so damaging. They're often one of God's sweetest gifts to us, and yet for all of family's good, they must never become a higher priority than following Christ. You know, you can imagine how in a patriarchal society like ancient Israel, it would have been shocking to see these two brothers leaving their father with the hired servants in the boat. You know, didn't they respect him? Weren't they supposed to honor him? What could be so important as to leave them, to, to leave him and follow Jesus? Well, Jesus is that important. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, friends, only the son of God can talk like this. Only the Christ, the bringer of God's kingdom at the fullness of time can talk like this and have it not be absolutely crazy, right? to call for the kind of loyalty and devotion that supersedes even family? Who does Jesus think he is? He's the son of God. One application of this, brothers and sisters, is that we shouldn't let family opposition prevent our following of Christ. You know, depending on your religious background and upbringing, people may, uh, your family may not respond well. They may oppose your desire to be baptized right? Whether it's perhaps from a Catholic background or a Muslim background or any kind of background, people may, uh, family may resist this desire that you have. 
And while we should respond with love and gentleness and humility, we should not let fear of our family's scorn uh, impede our obedience to King Jesus. You know, even as Christians, we may likewise face difficult conversations with family. When we decide, hey, we're going to move far away from family for the sake of the gospel. You know, that's confusing at times to siblings and parents. You know, parents, I wonder, do you pray for your children to become missionaries? Surely one of the strongest desires in a parent's life is to protect their little ones, right? This is obviously a good desire. And yet we should be wary lest the desire for the security and safety of our kids supersede our desire for them to follow Christ, whatever the cost. If the Lord Jesus were to call your children to risk their lives on the mission field for his glory and the salvation of the lost, how would you respond? How would I respond? And so notice for Simon and Andrew, as for James and John, all of them had to leave something behind to follow Christ. Do you notice that? Verse 18 says that Simon and Andrew left their nets. Verse 20 says that James and John left their father. Friends, you cannot begin to follow Christ without first leaving your old life behind. In all true following after Christ, we must turn from something to him. We leave to follow. So beware those preachers that emphasize only the blessings and benefits of following Christ. You know, of course, Jesus will always be worth it. He's always a good investment. But he does call his followers to count the cost. True discipleship, any true following of Christ will always be costly. And so in conclusion, notice that when Jesus calls people to repent and believe, he is not primarily summoning us to a way of life or to a moral code. That's what other philosophies and other religions will advocate for. Adopt certain habits, practice certain rituals, memorize certain dogmas. Yet for Christianity, Jesus is not mainly calling his people to a change in worldview. He's calling us to follow him. What does it look like to... You follow Jesus wherever he leads, whatever the costs, because he is worth it. Let's pray. Lord God, we're amazed that you would see fit for us to live on this side of Christ's advent, that we can look back at the apex of history and marvel at your salvation. Lord God, that we can look back into eternity, ages past, and see your love and grace. Lord Jesus, we're amazed because you were right when you said in John 15 that we didn't choose you, but you chose us. You called us to yourself. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that we'd we'd follow you more faithfully, more closely, that we'd look more like you. Help us to be faithful as fishers of men. Help us to make disciples wherever you call us, whatever the cost. May we do so with joy because of who you are. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to sing about this very reality now on page 15 as we sing, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Uh, Notice even just those first two lines. Jesus, I, my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Let's stand and sing on page 15, Jesus, I, my cross have taken.
have taken.